0: weekly appellate report. I'm Brian Cardinal. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, considering major appellate and constitutional law cases questions. Several times in the past few years, we've seen individual trial-level federal courts block government policies and actions not just within those courts' boundaries, or as to plaintiffs before those courts, but as to everyone, everywhere, The Southern District of Texas single-handedly enjoined an Obama administration immigration policy. Then, more recently, California's Central District, along with New York's Eastern District, halted the Trump administration's rescission of a similar deportation deferral program. And as to several other of the current administration's highest-profile policies, the travel bans, sanctuary city defunding, family separation deterrence policies— Individual trial courts have entirely blocked enforcement, again in many cases nationwide and as to all potential targets of such enforcement. The cluster of these nationwide or universal injunctions vexed certainly anyone in favor of the halted policies, but also a cohort of legal scholars and court watchers who worried that lower courts had overstepped their constitutional boundaries by granting relief to plaintiffs not before them and issuing rulings purporting to bind all other courts, even higher appellate courts. Aside from strict constitutional concerns, many worried also about prudential matters, thinking that even if nationwide injunctions are technically permissible, that they're still just bad ideas because, for instance, they prompt extreme forum shopping and what might appear like political manipulation of the justice system. Also, an argument goes if one injunction from one court halts cases nationwide, that prevents the sort of lower court percolation that helps the law develop. And this week, that latter concern finds itself before the Ninth Circuit, which issued an order for briefing on Monday in an Affordable Care Act contraception mandate case in which the Ninth Circuit asked whether its appeal has been effectively mooted by a nationwide injunction issued by the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. So the parties in the appellate court will now grapple with that issue, one that had been thus far largely theoretical in the scholarly debates over universal injunctions. To talk about the Ninth Circuit's quandary and the issue of nationwide injunctions more generally, I'm pleased to welcome in this week two scholars who have been at the center and on opposite sides of this fascinating and growing debate. First, Professor Howard Wosterman from Florida International University College of Law will join me to explain why he thinks national injunctions are never appropriate and also why they're more accurately referred to as universal injunctions. Then I'll talk to Professor Alan Trammell from the University of Arkansas School of Law who will argue that nationwide injunctions are advisable legal remedies in some, though certainly not all, instances. But before welcoming in our guest, I do have one quick reminder for you. Don't forget that listeners of our podcast are entitled to one hour of California CLE credit for having tuned in to this program. Dizzy enough to claim, just listen first to the show, then go to our website, dailyjournal.com, find this podcast. There you should see a link to a short true-false test, which, if you take it and then tender a very competitive fee, will entitle you to one hour of CLE credit. Okay, without any further ado, then I'm happy to welcome in Professor Howard Wosterman from Florida International University College of Law, the constitutional law scholar whose recent work includes an article entitled Nationwide Injunctions Are Really Universal Injunctions and They Are Never Appropriate. Professor Wasserman, welcome on to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you've written pretty extensively over the past couple of years about this particular topic. And before we dive in to your scholarship, I'd like to to establish sort of a common terminology here as to what we're talking about. So I think most folks, when they hear about this particular type of ruling, a, an injunction that reaches past the parties before the court to really everyone that could be affected by the actions of the defendant in court, that most most often have heard that described as a nationwide or national injunction, maybe thinking back to the various times the administration's travel bans got held up in court. I think news reports tended to refer to the ruling there as a nationwide injunction. You have said that's sort of a misnomer. We should call these rulings universal injunctions. I guess, what's the important distinction there?
1: Only that it's inaccurate. So there's There's two distinct issues here. there's the there's the geographic scope of the injunction. That is where the protection, where whoever is protected by the injunction enjoys that protection. And then there is a separate question of who is protected. And so nationwide, the reason I haven't liked nationwide is that seems to speak to the geographic scope. where, the injunction provides its protection. Whereas the, the concern with these injunctions is who they are protecting or who they are purporting to protect, which is not just the plaintiffs in the particular case, but the universe of people that might be subject to enforcement of the law, even if they're not parties to the case. And what I like to say is that injunctions are nationwide because they should be nationwide in the sense that the parties are protected everywhere they go. They should not be universal because only the parties should be protected. And so just to, to use a simple example with the travel ban, if I can't be kept out of you know, before the Supreme Court reversed it or overruled the injunction, obviously, but if I can't be banned from the country in if a Hawaii court says I can't be banned from the country, then I can't be banned from the country anywhere if I'm a party to the case. I can't be banned from the country if I try to come in through Hawaii or if I try to come in through Massachusetts. Uh, that injunction prohibits the government from enforcing the law against me wherever I am. But what the injunction shouldn't do is prohibit the government from enforcing that law against somebody else who wasn't a party to the case.
0: So essentially, all injunctions, as you say, are nationwide, but they aren't all universal. And you say, really, they never should be universal, right?
1: Yes, that's, okay. that's, the, view, that's the position that I've taken.
0: Okay. And then, so this Ninth Circuit order that came down on Monday and um, an ACA-related contraceptive mandate case uh, sort of... Gets to crystallize and, and illustrate one of the problems with these universal injunctions, as you describe them, that you have thus far been sort of theoretical. So here, the Ninth Circuit is asking for a briefing as to whether or not the claim brought by plaintiffs before them is is moot, thanks to a universal injunction from a federal court in Pennsylvania. So here, the the problem that has previously been described and now could be playing out is that universal injunctions prevent any lower court. Percolation—the sort of grappling with constitutional law across the different uh, federal courts across the country—and I mean, the, the contribution to sort of the growing, evolving jurisprudence as to constitutional questions that those disparate courts can lend. So, I guess on, on the flip side, though, if you know folks say, "Well, the issue is not moot," the Ninth Circuit can still consider this question, even though there's a universal injunction in another court already on the books. That also sort of undercuts the, I guess, genuineness. With which people might be saying that universal injunctions actually do apply universally. So tell me a bit just about how this Ninth Circuit order illustrates those problems.
1: So with the so you you, you describe pretty well the, the the back and forth arguments and and the the argument has been if one court can issue a universal injunction then that stops all enforcement and so there's really no basis for another court to decide the case. And the parallel litigation we've been having all over the place on all of these issues, the supporters of universal injunctions argue, shows that that's not not actually a problem. Lots of litigation is happening. Lots of courts are issuing lots of injunctions. And my response has been, probably because they're saying they're universal injunction, but the injunctions are universal, but nobody's really taking that seriously. They all seem, everybody seems to believe that the additional injunctions are necessary. And so what the Ninth Circuit is, what the Ninth Circuit orders now going to do is test out that idea. And the argument will be If the injunction from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania is truly universal, it truly, as it purports to be, if it truly prohibits the federal government from going forward, from enforcing the regulation, repealing the contraception mandate, then there's no purpose for the Ninth Circuit litigation because the plaintiffs in the Ninth Circuit are protected against enforcement of that regulation. The the repeal of the contraception ban. They are protected by the by the injunction in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, even though they're not parties to the case. So there's no reason for there's no remedy that the Ninth Circuit can provide to the plaintiffs in that case because they they're not they're already protected by an injunction. So they're not at risk of the law being enforced, the new regulation being enforced against them. And so that's, and that's the idea.
0: You mentioned there, you know, has in the past, over the past couple of years been some parallel litigation and, and universal injunctions issuing from different courts across the country. So have those courts not grappled with this mootness question I mean, in the travel ban context, you had the Western district of Washington and Maryland, both issued injunctions in the sanctuary City cases where the government was going to withhold funds from sanctuary cities, I think there was also a ruling in California and illinois where were the mutinous questions not dealt with there
1: No one has ever to, to my knowledge, no court has ever brought this up, and no parties have ever have ever suggested this as an issue so this is and i and I think that's why it caught the eye of a lot of people is because this this is the first time that a court has ever Questioned its own power to rule in a case in light of a purportedly universal injunction in in another case.
0: Okay, let's back up for just a second and talk about I guess the recent acceleration you describe as to the use of these particular types of injunctions. You say they previously weren't particularly common. We've seen a lot of them over the past couple of years. Do you have any thoughts on what might be explaining that uh, acceleration?
1: I think two things. I think one is that the challenges are all coming to federal laws. uh, And there is this greater sense that, well, of course, if a federal law is constitutionally invalid, then its complete enforcement should be stopped across the nation or as to every person in the nation as opposed to state laws being a little bit more in theory being a little bit more particularized so the fact that it's more and more federal laws the fact and federal regulations i think second is the fact that states are the ones bringing these cases either on behalf of their own interests or seeking to enforce the interests of their citizens. And so almost by definition, the injunction is just going to have a a broader effect because, you know, the uh, one state is not like, you know, you know, one person who's, or, or one couple who's getting an injunction so they can get a marriage license or that, so that they can not have the Defense of Marriage Act uh, enforced against them. And then the third thing is what's being challenged in many, many of these cases are administrative regulations issued by executive agencies. And so that brings the Administrative Procedures Act into the mix. And the Administrative Procedures Act has in one provision language that speaks about a federal court, quote-unquote, setting aside a regulation that doesn't comport with the Administrative Procedures Act, including because it's constitutionally invalid. And courts have read that language in the Administrative Procedures Act as to allow the court to erase a regulation Uh, and just take the regulation off the books in the way that the court doesn't have the power to do when it's talking about uh, an act of Congress. So I think some combination of those three is why we're seeing so many more of these since about 2015 with the Texas's challenge to DAPA. And it's now taken off once one court allowed it. Everybody else is is just jumping on board, and it now has become a subject for litigation.
0: Maybe just for one sec, we could dwell on that. That Texas versus the U.S. case you mentioned in the context of the the DAPA executive action would have protected some class of uh, parents of undocumented immigrant parents of a, a citizen children. You know, at, at the time, I don't recall, and perhaps it's only because, or perhaps it's because that ruling or that uh, injunction universally applied was only sort of one instance and there weren't that many others that followed quickly behind it but i don't remember that much discussion at that point about you know gee whether or not it's a good idea for the southern district of texas to be able to step in and stop for everyone uh particular executive action was there much um, discussion on, on that point at that time
1: there was a little bit. It, it, I, I think it was raised on appeal to the Fifth Circuit. The, the federal government did. The government did raise it on appeal, on the appeal of the order to the Fifth Circuit. It was not really a subject of focus when that was uh, appealed to SCOTUS, and SCOTUS ended up just affirming the Fifth Circuit by, uh, by an evenly divided court. But it somewhat laid – the. a few people were were raising eyebrows about it, and it laid the groundwork so that when in 2017 you have that just wave of litigation against everything that the Trump administration was doing, now all of a sudden the scope of injunction was front and center – a lot more people were talking about it, and I think the government was the government under the, the Department of Justice under the Trump administration has been a lot more aggressive in singling that out as an issue uh, as an issue on appeal.
0: One thing that just strikes me as to that sort of the, the usefulness in terms of debating this topic when as it pertains to, to that particular case, you know, it, it's really the main primary example of a a democratic policy being held up by courts and sort of is an automatic counter to any folks saying, well, anyone arguing in the last couple of years against nationwide injunctions just thinks that the courts are getting in the way of the Trump administration and they have political aims. But obviously, you know, the Southern District of Texas isn't going anywhere. The Northern District of California is not going anywhere. So if we get a democratic administration in the future, you know, this question, obviously, or the use of these injunctions could could trip that administration up just as easily as the current one. So It does seem like that, uh, Southern District of Texas case in the DAPA context is, is helpful in having sort of a fair debate here. Just
1: Oh yeah, no, and there's there's no question there's there's definitely a little bit of you know, charges of hypocrisy going back and forth and and questions of, of whose ox is being gored. Mm-hmm. Uh, Republicans in Congress were perfectly happy for you know the Southern District of Texas. To enjoin the DAPA policy, and then two years later, it is how dare a single federal judge on an island in the Pacific issue an injunction that stops the the Trump administration's attempt to keep out to keep people out of the country. So, but you can always count on on politicians to be to be disingenuous when it comes to uh, when it comes to procedure.
0: Okay, well, um, let's dive into. We've sort of obliquely referenced a few of them, but your primary arguments against the use of, of universal injunctions. One, as I understand it, is that particularized injunctions, ones just granted to the parties before the court, sort of more neatly and uh, consistently comport with how constitutional litigation really works and how constitutional law is structured. That uh, you know the, the unconstitutional act in the situation where there is say an unconstitutional law is not the law itself being on the books but in fact the government trying to apply it to some person and so the response should be stopping the government from enforcing it as to that person not from taking it off the books is that roughly the argument
1: that's part of it so so the the job of what what triggers what you could say what triggers a constitutional violation what triggers a plaintiff's standing to bring a lawsuit is the idea, challenging the validity of a law, is the idea that the law is being enforced against him. And because that law is invalid, it can't, enforcing it against him injures him and, and violates his constitutional rights. And so the remedy for that, and the court's job is to remedy the case before it, should be to stop that enforcement that is violating that person's rights and that's really all that happens in these cases an injunction is issued that says hey government official who's the defendant in the action you can't enforce this law you can't enforce this law that prohibits flag burning against against this person you can't you can't enforce this law against the city of chicago that would deprive it of its federal funds uh, because it operates as a sanctuary city and that's what we sort of expect courts to do in the course of deciding cases or controversies, which is, which are what courts are empowered to do. And so they don't cause the law to, law to disappear. The law is still on the books. It just can't be enforced. So as a matter of, of Article 3, as a matter of what courts historically, courts of equity historically did in issuing injunctions, and there's an interesting historical debate about this, what courts were charged with doing was resolving the dispute between these parties to the case. And that's it. And any other parties or any other individuals, their claims would be resolved in new litigation that might follow.
0: So maybe just a. To- to, to ground it in, in one example that everyone's very familiar with if you take the case of Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, you know, I guess I had never really thought about it, but is the ruling there only applicable to the plaintiff or, I'm not sure if there are more than one plaintiffs in that case against the, the Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas, or I may mean, I just I guess I always understood it as that was now the law and no states, no public education systems could discriminate uh, on that basis any longer.
1: Well, so, and here's the, the, the important distinction between the judgment of the court and the opinion of the court. So the judgment of the court, what it formally prohibited, and it was just, there, it, it, Brown was like four or five cases combined, so it prohibited, to use the Kansas case, it prohibited Kansas from enforcing its de jure discrimination in schools as to those plaintiffs. That's what the order did. And if Kansas did not allow those students to go to a different school, uh, the, the Brown and, and, those, and those students to go to a different school, that would be in violation of a violation of the injunction and would be punishable by contempt of court. The court's opinion explaining that judgment went a lot broader than that. It relied on general constitutional principles that separate but equal is constitutionally invalid and that operating segregated schools was inconsistent with the 14th Amendment. So that opinion... Was going to guide everybody's conduct going forward. There was there was no judgment in place that anybody other than the board of Topeka, Kansas, could violate or could be held in contempt for violating. So you know, several several years later, you get uh, you get the dispute in in Little Rock, Arkansas, and properly under which created its own Supreme Court litiga- litigation before the Supreme Court, properly understood that had nothing directly to do with Brown. The, the The Little Rock Court was not acting in violation of the court order in Brown, which had nothing to do with Little Rock. It was acting in violation of the opinion of the court and the court's announcement of the constitutional rule that discrimination in public schools violates the fourteenth Amendment. But they're two slightly but they're two distinct things. And so yes, in Brown the judgment itself was just Topeka had to allow Brown and there were a couple of other a bunch of other plaintiffs in that case had to allow them into school, couldn't keep them out of out of a whites out of a whites only school. That's what the the order of the court said. And now just to, just to jump ahead, so, so one thing that – so in 1966, the Supreme Court amended Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which deals with class actions, to create, uh, to create uh, an injunctive class action that a class of people can bring a suit to obtain injunctive relief that will benefit the class as a whole. And this was specifically directed at or the, the, the purpose behind the amended rule was with school desegregation and integration cases in mind, because as a formal matter, a court or a government could comply with an injunction in an individual case just by letting the plaintiffs into an otherwise white, an otherwise all-white school. Topeka could comply with the injunction by allowing Brown to go to an otherwise all-white school, but that wouldn't get at the broader problem of wanting to integrate the school. And so what 23B, to, what the Amendment to Rule 23 allows, is a class of all of the African-American students who want to be able to go to integrated schools to bring a lawsuit to get an injunction that protects the entire class now the only way to comply is for the government to actually make the structural moves that are necessary to 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 integrate the schools
0: you know speaking of the, the class action injunction it, it starts to sound pretty similar to the sorts of plaintiff classes that um, at least seem to appear in some of these cases, like, you know, for instance, let's say the, the DACA litigation brought um, here in, in California, joined on to by some states, the UC school system, and then a, you know, a number of, of DACA recipients. That sort of resembles a class, and, and certainly folks impacted by the rescission of DACA. You, you could think of that as a pretty cognizable class, but you know, officially that group of plaintiffs didn't go through the sort of certification process to create a class of all DACA recipients affected. So I suppose, you know, what's the importance in making sure – but but nonetheless, you know, there's a, a universal injunction that protects all the, those folks. So what's the important reason to make sure, in, in your mind, that the plaintiffs should go through the, the steps of actually creating a Rule 23 class?
1: Just because those steps are there for a reason. And and 23B, there's, even if it's relatively easy to satisfy – there, there are steps to be taken within the litigation process. There are, you know, again, the fact that states are suing in very, in many cases, they are suing on behalf of their citizens. So determining whether the states or whoever the, the plaintiff is has standing are all ways to ensure that the case is proceeding within civil litigation as we understand it, and the rules governing civil litigation. And so we have rule 23 for a reason. We have limitations on or rules for associational standing for a reason. And if I can get, or if a, a, a plaintiff can file an individual case and get universal relief, why would anybody ever bother trying to bring a class action? It would rem- render that part of Rule 23 a nullity. There would be no reason for anybody to go through the burden of having to certify the class because they can get what they want without having to go through that.
0: One other sort of idea tied to maybe say the, the Brown versus Board case is you say a reason you might not necessarily need universal injunctions in a lot of these cases is though there will be sort of voluntary compliance. So I imagine some you know, school districts in the South said, okay, well, we should probably go ahead and integrate because even if the court isn't talking to us directly, clearly it has made this constitutional rule or at least a- outlined it in its opinion. Um, and so let's go ahead and integrate before we get sued. So I, I take it that's, I guess, how, how strong of a reason is that, uh, to argue against the the need for a court to officially say, okay, I am, we are issuing this injunction as to everyone that could possibly be affected?
1: I, th- I, I mean, to me, that is really the strongest argument for why keeping the injunctions particularized to the parties would not be problematic, because I think most governments you know, seeing the the writing on the wall from the court's opinion are simply going to fall into line because they know if they push the point, they're going to get sued, they're going to lose because the court is going to apply uh, controlling precedent. And so they may they may as well fall into line. Now, we did have the example of massive resistance after Brown, but that has been so discredited historically, even if there may have been some reason for it, it's been so discredited historically that governments are not likely to undertake those steps. And I think we saw that for the, or we saw that in many places in the wake of the same sex marriage litigation, that once a district court enjoined enforcement of the state's same sex marriage ban, officials in, in a lot of these states simply started handing out licenses. Now they weren't required to do that by the injunction. The injunction only required them because most of these cases weren't class action, um, The injunction only required to them to give the license to certain to certain people. But most states said, look, we know where where this is all going, so we're just going to go ahead and voluntarily comply and or voluntarily follow this existing precedent rather than pushing the point, getting sued, and and losing all over again. And so you saw this in Wisconsin, you saw this in Utah, you saw this in a number of states where where state officials simply fell into line, and it was really the outlier states like Alabama, like Kim Davis in Kentucky. Who resisted and drew a whole lot of attention precisely because of how unusual that resistance was.
0: One other principal argument that's brought against universal injunctions is that is that just something about them issuing from courts from uh, different parts of the country that might have you know, particularly particular political leanings, say, like the Southern District of Texas or the Northern District of, of California, that it sort of just seems kind of unfair to hold up a government action based on one district court ruling for everybody. It sort of encourages pretty extreme forum shopping. I mean, obviously, the courts across the country are there for reasons. We could redesign the court system and only have federal courts in, say, one certain place. or uh, But so there's courts around the country for a particular reason and forum shopping is generally something that folks you know, think is okay to some extent. But I guess, why is the that forum shopping at play here so problematic or why does it seem to to be more of a problem?
1: Well, I agree with you. Forum sho- Another word for forum shopping is just serving your client's best interest and and doing a good job of representing your client. So, yeah, there's there's nothing that should be particularly problematic. I think it it really is just perception because these are such hot-button political issues I think the, the perception that, uh, the, uh, you, you know, the, the people are troubled by the perception that you're going to a court that, to a district and, a, and to a circuit that adheres to your, to your political views, that it just looks like the courts are doing politics and they're not doing law. And so a number of proposals have been made to try to get at the forum shopping problem. Some have suggested that any time you're asking for a universal injunction, it has to be done by a three-judge three district court. Others have argued that these cases should all go to the district of the District of Columbia and, and kind of centralize everything in the, in the nation's capital. The, the forum shopping argument doesn't really do a whole lot for me because we could remedy the forum shopping problem, and my concern still remains, which is courts just shouldn't be protecting beyond the parties anyway. So even if you funneled all of these cases to a particular court or you put it before a three-judge district court so it wasn't one judge in an island in the Pacific uh, doing it, to my mind, the fact remains even a three-judge district court shouldn't be issuing an injunction that protects beyond the parties.
0: Okay, just a, a couple more for you. you know, a couple of central arguments that are, are brought to bear when folks talk about the reasons these universal injunctions might be good ideas or serve um, legitimate and, and salutary ends. You know, Once is sort of a, an exigency exception that in some of these cases it really seems like pretty – Urgent matters and maybe sort of unusual ones, and and perhaps the harm that could be felt by the the class of plaintiffs and, and those in similar situations as the the plaintiffs before the court are, are very extreme. You know, take the DACA example. If let's stipulate for a second that the the rescission of the, the program was unconstitutional, or, I'm sorry, against the APA at least, and certainly there are arguments that it was was not problematic as to the APA. But let's stipulate that. It was, you know, folks are deported and then sent to a, a faraway country, perhaps they've, one they've never been to. That's a pretty extreme harm and say eventually this is a situation where the court determines the action was you know, invalid. What's your strongest argument when it, when it comes to folks saying these are just sort of extreme circumstances and so in these unusual times or these unusual cases, we should allow these sorts of uh, orders?
1: The problem is there's no, and I recognize the point. I, I think a better example that I've that I've heard people offer is the reaction to the first travel ban, when lawyers were going into the airports and and then running to court, and it was absolute chaos. And if the or you know you needed universal orders because otherwise nobody knew nobody knew what was going on. Uh, and that is an extreme case that that I recognize that is an extreme case. The problem is everything starts to look like an exceptional case, and we really have seen that in a lot of in a lot of these cases where the courts have purport, have issued universal injunctions and they've provided analysis or justification for it in terms that sound like. They're really trying to restrain their power. It should only be reserved for these extraordinary cases. And then every case starts to look extraordinary. They, they kick off a bunch of factors that should guide the court, and those factors are present in just about every case. And so my concern is I just haven't seen a stopping point for it.
0: In the immigration context as, as well, party is either challenging the Obama administration's policies or the Trump administration's policies have also said you kind of need uniformity in how these laws are applied. And, and, and one situation that could be created if you don't have these universal injunctions is there are different approaches in different circuits as to how immigration law is applied. But you also say that sort of that disuniformity is not a terribly huge problem.
1: I, I think disuniformity is, is built into a diffuse judicial system. You have 90 some judicial districts spread out all over the country. You have 12 regional circuits spread out all over the country. So yeah, you are going to you are going to get some some disuniformity, but that's but that's part of the percolation process. That's part of the process of a number of different courts are going to get a crack at deciding these cases and they may in the short term Disagree with one another. Ultimately, that's why we have a Supreme Court to resolve those those differences, if they if that and resolve that
2: disuniformity.
1: So you are going to get disuniformity in in the short term. We accept that. We we expect it, and it's it's part of the system. And those who believe in lower court percolation would say it's a feature of the system, not a bug.
0: Okay. Uh, one last one, just sort of looking forward. Do you expect universal injunctions to continue, their use to continue to accelerate? Or do you think there's been sort of enough scholarly pushback from quarters such as your own and enough sort of dirty looks from justices on the Supreme Court as to this point that uh, their use might be uh, toned down a bit? And I guess, you know, it it strikes me that in the pretty polar and hostile political we're in that maybe one contributing factor is that – Sort of like a, a no holds barred type situation. If you have, you know, the Republican Senate not wanting to give Merrick Garland a hearing, and then maybe you hear Democratic partisans saying we should expand the Supreme Court. Those are sort of outside of the box type type moves, uh, sort of extreme measures and, and tactics. Do you think that national injunctions sort of fall into those sort of categories as you know, just sort of tactics you wouldn't typically consider, but now are on the table? And if that's so, you know, if we have a continue to have a pretty hot political seen, that would perhaps suggest we might keep seeing these. And what are your thoughts on going forward for a universal injunction?
1: I think the parties are definitely going to keep pushing for it. Even plaintiffs are definitely going to, going to keep pushing for it, exactly for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, if there's a change of administration come 2021, the positions that the parties are taking are going to flip. And yeah, it is part of this sense of constitutional or political hardball. That the parties are are trying to undertake. There is now a pretty sharp scholarly divide, and more scholars are on the universal injunctions are okay, even if they should be limited. Uh, poll than the other side. I was I was at a panel a few weeks ago, and there were. 11 scholars, and I think two of us were opposed to universal injunctions in all cases. So the scholarly consensus is is actually going in the other direction. I think what you're going to have is a, hopefully, a more nuanced judicial analysis of this. I I think the, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania's decision in the in the contraception case, while I don't agree with its outcome, I thought was one of the more thoughtful decisions that we've gotten without laying the groundwork for every injunction being universal. I'm also very curious as to how the Ninth Circuit resolves this issue. And if the Ninth Circuit it comes to the conclusion that a universal injunction from another court moots or makes unnecessary a remedy from that court, I think that will also uh, will have an effect on this. As for the Supreme Court, you know, so far the only one who's come out strongly against this is Justice Thomas, and Justice Gorsuch indicated a certain amount of discomfort with it or or was at least questioning it. Uh, the rest of the court, we we just don't know. So I don't think there's a, uh, I don't think the justices are lining up to formally resolve this one way or another.
0: Okay. Well, we'll look forward to some hopefully additional percolation then here in the, the Ninth Circuit as to this mootinous question, but we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Howard Wasserman from Florida International University School of Law, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Happy to do it. Thank you for having me.
0: Professor Wasserman just mentioned a growing chorus of scholars and court watchers have begun to put in a few good words for the use of nationwide universal injunctions. One such scholar is Professor Alan Trammell, from the University of Arkansas School of Law, who wrote recently the piece Demystifying Nationwide Injunctions. Professor, thanks for being on our show. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so you have uh, added to the very lively scholarly debate here um, about these types of injunctions, these nationwide you know, universal injunctions, something of a qualified defense, I would say. And I'm looking forward to diving into the various constituent pieces of it and your, your arguments that you bring to bear, but maybe first we could sort of top line it. Would you say that you know what you're arguing is that these nationwide injunctions are you know, perhaps not a good idea to use All of the time, but they do have some use. And so, in certain instances, they uh, are not only okay, but also uh, useful.
2: I think that that's a very correct assessment and summary of my position. That is to say, that nationwide injunctions are not unconstitutional. They're also not a good idea in most instances, but there are a few select situations where they actually are quite useful and practical.
0: Great. Then we'll start to get into some of those practical scenarios, but first deal with some of the, the arguments first. Um, so you say there's no constitutional hurdles or at least no prohibitive ones. A few that folks have raised and that you set up in your piece, one is a due process idea and that we've certainly seen play out that if a court grants relief to not only plaintiffs that, that bring the case before them and seek an injunction, but also plaintiffs outside of the courthouse and outside of the four corners of the the papers in the case that uh, those other non-party plaintiffs might not want that relief. So if you think about the the DAPA case in Texas, you know Texas and I think twenty-five or six other states brought that case, but plenty of other states didn't want the remedy, the the nationwide injunction. So you know what about those due process concerns that those non-party plaintiffs don't want the relief granted?
2: I think that it is a very legitimate concern. It's something that we deal with all the time when we're talking about aggregate litigation. The modern class action was born in 1966, in large part to address desegregation litigation, bringing together all of the African-American families who would be affected by a particular decision. And that was not going to to be possible. That is to say, bringing everybody together unless there was a mechanism for it. So The the modern class action, in a lot of ways, has had to grapple with this very problem. And courts are supposed to be sensitive to it. For instance, one family might not perceive integration as the most important goal and might, in fact, view integration in a particular moment in time as deleterious. So you're going to have differences of opinion, differences of goals, differences in terms of litigation tactics. But those aren't really going to raise due process concerns, at least from a constitutional perspective. Courts have long recognized that they need to be sensitive to the different goals and motivations of the affected parties, but that simply counsels prudence, it might suggest that there should be subclasses within a class action, and generally that courts should not just plow ahead simply because they have one plaintiff who has standing and is pursuing a very broad remedy. All of that is to say these are very legitimate concerns, but they aren't ones that necessarily raise a constitutional due process concern.
0: One other concern that's raised is that you know we have this hierarchy of federal courts, trial courts, uh, intermediate appellate courts, and then the Supreme Court. And it seems like sort of a odd and maybe improper quirk that were the lowest level court, a trial court to issue a, a universal nationwide injunction, it theoretically binds the hands of of higher-up courts, and we sort of see this in the Ninth Circuit order. The Ninth Circuit is wondering whether it can act on the appeal before it because, uh, you know, a lower federal court out in Pennsylvania has theoretically already granted relief, uh, ruled on this issue to uh, the plaintiffs. So why is that not a problem that these lower courts can bind, you know, more powerful, higher-up courts?
2: In a lot of ways, I think that it, it absolutely is a problem. It's not a constitutional problem, though. Uh, this is yet another situation where I think the court's, should be sensitive to the fact that a sister court might be considering the very same issue. They should be sensitive to the fact that there might be conflicting judgments that are issued, and they don't want to put, in most instances, instances, the government between a rock and a hard place where it is facing inconsistency. So all of that is to say it's yet one more thing that courts should consider. But when you're thinking about the structural organization, the hierarchy of courts, particularly within the federal system, although you're right to point out that it is odd for one lower court to issue an injunction that applies throughout the entire country and potentially is binding even on higher courts, that's something that happens with, if not frequency, at least with some regularity when it comes to preclusion issues, when it comes to a number of other manifestations of relief, uh, particularly equitable relief equity can transcend geographic boundaries that happens all the time preclusion transcends geographic boundaries all the time and very rarely preclusion can apply when a lower court issues a judgment and if certain circumstances obtained then it could effectively be binding on a higher court as well again these are concerns that courts should be sensitive to by hardly anything to do with the structure of the federal judiciary is inevitable. Our current structure dates back to the late 19th century. Different different state courts take a different approach in terms of which courts are allowed to create binding authority. That is to say, it's all very contingent. And and so the mere fact that you can identify an oddity in nationwide injunctions doesn't necessarily suggest that these injunctions are unconstitutional.
0: Another important, obviously, piece of the Constitution for the legal community, Article 3 sets up that the notion that courts can hear cases and controversies suggesting that, you know, the courts hear and then remedy the causes that are brought before them. You know, one issue is sort of a a mismatch of scope between maybe particular plaintiffs or group of plaintiffs harm and then the, the scope of the remedy. Maybe think in the context of the travel ban, if the University of Washington is one of the main plaintiffs in one of those suits in the Western District of Washington saying they were harmed because certain students or professors wouldn't be able to come and research at the university. That harm is mismatched with the nationwide relief the court grants to, you know, anyone that could be touched by that travel ban, which might suggest that the court's sort of out of tune with the idea that it's just solving the case or controversy before it. You know, what do you think about that sort of mismatch?
2: I think that this is what really gets to the heart of the constitutional debate about nationwide injunctions. Everything that we've been talking about until now, the the structural hierarchical organization of the judiciary, the concerns about different goals between particular plaintiffs or would-be plaintiffs are all oddities and prudential concerns that, that one might raise. But, but the heart of the Article Three objection is really this. There And there are a couple of ways that some scholars will phrase it. One is in terms of standing. They will say, In your example, the University of Washington has standing to litigate the travel ban question on its own behalf, but it doesn't have the ability to stand in the shoes of other would-be plaintiffs and to try to obtain a remedy on their behalf. The problem with that approach is that it's conflating two distinct issues. You've got standing, which I really think of as a front-end issue in litigation. You're trying to figure out, is this the right plaintiff? Does this plaintiff have a sufficiently concrete stake in the litigation in order to pursue it. As I say, that's something that a court has to answer on the front end and logically makes sense to answer on the front end. When you're talking about scope of remedy, that's what I refer to as a back-end question. You can't know what the appropriate remedy is until you've actually gone through the entire litigation and you've figured out the extent of the harm That the particular plaintiffs have suffered. Only at that point is a court in a position to determine the scope of remedy. And so I think that the Supreme Court is entirely right, and it's been consistent over the years in saying that scope of remedy is quite distinct from standing questions. The question about the appropriate scope of remedy really goes to the ultimate merits of the case. And again, you can't know that until you've actually gone through the entire litigation process. So that's one way that that some people have objected on constitutional grounds to nationwide injunctions. The standing argument, again, I think that that's incorrect. The other one is phrased slightly differently. It says, I think as you were pointing out, that you can litigate only an actual case or controversy, and that is turning on the particular dispute that the parties raise and that a court has no power to go beyond that. In other words, it has no power to litigate the rights and obligations of people who aren't before the court, that is to say non-parties. But this is a view of judicial power that's really pegged to what some people have called the dispute resolution model, that a court only answers the very specific questions that the parties have raised and teed up. It sounds really nice, but it's completely ahistorical. Since the inception of the Republic, courts have always understood the dispute resolution is an attribute of judicial power. It's probably the single most important attribute, but it's not the definition of judicial power. Courts very often have gone beyond the parties' disputes, often ordering parties to brief other issues, ordering amici to argue cases. And there there are tons of examples throughout the centuries of courts understanding that judicial power isn't defined solely in terms of resolving the actual parties' disputes.
0: Yeah, you, you certainly lay out this in in your piece the idea that even if courts are maybe primarily there to get in between some say private disputes or other varieties of disputes to make sure they don't devolve into you know violence or something like that, the the Supreme Court and the cases that you are most familiar with does sort of act in a, a broader way and do what seems to be more like declaring the nature of constitutional law and and what's what it's writing. I guess. One sort of related question that our previous guest, Professor Wasserman, brought up is that, you know, I guess the one reason why it's more proper to think of courts as the dispute resolvers is because actual constitutional harm comes when, say, unconstitutional laws are enforced against particular folks and not just put onto the books. And, you know, so it it's just it's sort of a, a nullity to think of the court erasing unconstitutional laws. It's only just blocking their enforcement against individual you know certain parties, the parties that have come to complain before it. And so that sort of adds on to this Article Three quandary. Does that you know make sense?
2: It does make sense, and in a lot of ways, it sounds very nice. Justice Scalia, for instance, was very fond of saying that courts rule on the constitutionality of a statute or a policy only incidentally to resolving the party's dispute. In other words, a court shouldn't see itself as primarily there to declare what the law is to rule on the constitutionality of a statute. It has to have a very concrete dispute between parties. And if it becomes necessary, and only if it becomes necessary to rule on the constitutionality of a statute, should a court do that. But again, that's never how courts have behaved uniformly in in the 200 plus years that the United States has existed. You can think back to the iconic case of Marbury versus Madison itself, the case in which Chief Justice John Marshall announced the power of judicial review. That was a case in which the Supreme Court did not have jurisdiction. So in theory, to resolve the dispute, all the court had to do was to say, we don't have jurisdiction over this controversy. It's over. Instead, the court took upon itself the power to announce this almost mind-boggling power. I shouldn't say mind-boggling power. It had existed before. But, but for the first time, the Supreme Court was, was announcing this, um, this unique power of judicial review. It was declaring what the law was. It was answering constitutional questions. And only at the end of all of that did the court say, oh, we don't have jurisdiction. So this is a, a primary example of the court doing exactly what Justice Scalia said that it shouldn't be doing, and I think somewhat, in, in a somewhat revisionist way, argued that the courts haven't been doing it. In fact, they have been doing it. Uh, they, they've been going beyond the party's disputes forever.
0: Okay, so even though if there are no prohibitive constitutional hurdles here, you do say that national injunctions might still be a bad idea in sort of the mind-run of cases. So let's kind of dig into when they might be a good idea. One way that you... Sort of defend the this type of order as you relate it to another type of another legal idea um, that you've mentioned preclusion and so let's unpack that a little bit. As I understand preclusion, you know, it's the idea that, say, for example, we get into a car crash and I sue you for negligence. The court finds that you did nothing wrong, so I lose. I'm precluded from you know suing you a second time for the same idea, and then. You know, Also, as I understand it, if someone crashed into me from behind in this uh, accident, if they wanted to see you for negligence, they would also be precluded because you could say, hey, a court already said I wasn't negligent. Um, but there's a, another kind of preclusion, the offensive non-mutual preclusion that you say national injunctions are most like. Remind me what exactly we're talking about with offensive non-mutual preclusion and, and what some of its pitfalls are that sort of match the national injunction uh, problems.
2: Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start out by saying preclusion can get really, really complicated in its details, but in a lot of ways, it reflects a beautifully simple idea, which is that if you have had a full and a fair opportunity to litigate a particular question, then you don't get a second shot to do so if you've lost. One of my friends puts it very succinctly, once a loser, always a loser. So in your example, you're involved in a car accident, you try to sue somebody, and you happen to lose. Well, you don't get a second shot at that. You've already had your day in court. That is all due process requires. All right, so that's preclusion simpliciter, as you might say. It gets a little bit dicey when you start talking about subsequent litigation when a non-party to the first lawsuit is trying to take advantage of preclusion. So let me start with an example that I think is usually quite helpful to people. Um, imagine that you and I both work for Walmart. And we allege that Walmart has an overtime policy that is illegal. So you sue Walmart and you win. Walmart was the defendant. It had a full and fair opportunity to defend its policy and it happened to lose. So I come along in a second second lawsuit. I sue Walmart and I say, look, you already had one chance to defend the legality of your overtime policy and you lost. And so you shouldn't be allowed to relitigate that. And I basically should win automatically. That's offensive non-mutual issue preclusion. I was not a party to the first lawsuit. Offensive because I am using preclusion as a sword against Walmart because they already had their day in court. Now, most courts recognize that this is at least theoretically possible in a number of instances when you're dealing with private parties. It is a little more complicated when you are dealing with the government. There was a case United States versus Mendoza about 30 some odd years ago, in which somebody tried to do that against the government, saying, look, the government had a shot to litigate this already. It lost. And so I should be able to take advantage of that. And at least in that particular case, the Supreme Court said that offensive non-mutual issue preclusion was not available against the government. A lot of people who oppose nationwide injunctions, and in fact, courts generally, view Mendoza as having articulated a hard and fast rule, that this form of preclusion is never available against the government. I don't think that's actually what the case says, and there are a number of lower court cases that have understood that Mendoza is applying certain prudential or policy limits on the use of this type of preclusion. And I think that that is the better way to understand it, because there are all sorts of problems that can come up when we're talking about non-mutual preclusion. Think back to the Walmart example that I just gave you. I might have an incentive to just sit back and wait to see how your lawsuit plays out. I might learn from it. And if you happen to lose, no harm, no foul. I can't be bound by it because I did not have my day in court yet. But I could take advantage of a win that you achieve against Walmart. So there's that wait and see incentive. There's also the problem that there could be inconsistent judgments. Let's say that that you and I have separate lawsuits against Walmart. You win, I lose. Well, it's regarding the exact same matter and courts have reached different conclusions. It doesn't make sense to allow a third person to come along and to cherry pick the particular result that he or she prefers. So there are all sorts of of problems that can arise when you're dealing with non-mutual preclusion generally. And court's response used to be those hypothetical problems suggest that non-mutual preclusion should never be available. But about 40, 50 years ago, courts recognized that if these hypothetical problems actually don't come along, then there's no reason not to allow for this type of preclusion. Again, remember, Walmart's already had its opportunity to, to litigate the matter. It had a day in court. So courts are supposed to be sensitive to these policy concerns. I think that Mendoza articulated a further set of policy concerns when the government is the litigant, recognizing that the government is in charge of of establishing the law throughout the entire country, that different presidential administrations might have different litigation priorities. In other words, these are other things that courts should be sensitive to. They don't, to my mind, suggest that non-mutual preclusion is categorically problematic, and the analogy here is to nationwide injunctions. You've got non-parties who did not participate in the first lawsuit, and yet they benefit from the government's loss. There, there's some differences and we can talk about them, but I think that the policy concerns are overwhelmingly the same. And that is that courts should be sensitive to them, but they shouldn't categorically reject either non-mutual preclusion or nationwide injunctions simply because of the prospect that problems could arise.
0: Sure. I mean, in that example where that you give, illustrating a problem of non-mutual preclusion where that you know third Walmart employee comes along and takes advantage of, say, my win and, and your loss to Walmart is sort of ignored. I mean, you can make that more extreme. Say, you know, 10 employees come before court and all individually in their own cases lose, but then I come and, and win. The idea that everyone after me automatically has to win does sound a little bit Unfair. So if you sort of map that on to the national injunction framework, say if five courts heard you know, the travel ban litigation, this didn't happen, but five courts in a row said, no, it's totally fine. But then the sixth one said, okay, we're going to enjoin the government against everyone. That would seem to sort of nullify or just sort of make meaningless those five previous suits, right? So does that sort of one of the – is it maybe the biggest problem with mapping – that concept onto national injunctions or just one of the bigger problems with national injunctions or the biggest worries generally?
2: I think that that is one of the chief concerns, that there are going to be inconsistent judgments, that the government could face inconsistent obligations. And in particular, when we're thinking about nationwide injunctions and the government as defendant. there's the problem that the first loss that the government experiences winds up getting entrenched throughout the entire country. It thwarts percolation of the issues, the usual way that different courts can hear the issue, and ultimately tee it up for Supreme Court review. A national injunction, in theory, shuts everything down immediately. So that is a concern. Uh, it's a very legitimate concern. And again, it suggests that Court should be reluctant to issue nationwide injunctions immediately, that perhaps they should wait to see whether something of a consensus has arisen, making sure that there are not these inconsistent obligations uh, or, or verdicts before, as I say, they entrench a particular result throughout the country.
0: And you know, sort of waiting to see or checking first to see if there's some legal consensus, if there's settled law in a particular area, you know, brings up you know, a problem that seems to be recurring in some of these lawsuits where there's not a whole lot of law on the books. You know, like the first travel ban was pretty broad, it was pretty uncommon. And so, the first courts to hear it, you know, there's no real settled law that's clearly on point in that scenario. So, um, what does, I guess, exactly mean to say courts? Should wait to see how the law develops. Does that mean if it's, you know, in that particular circumstance, the first court to hear a travel ban case definitely shouldn't issue a a universal injunction?
2: I think that there should be a very, very strong presumption against issuing a nationwide injunction if you're the first court to hear the issue. Let me shift to the opposite end of the spectrum, if you don't mind, which is to talk about what I think is a pretty clear instance where the law is settled. And a universal injunction is quite appropriate. Um, I mentioned in my paper the example of Kim Davis. She was the clerk in Rowan County, Kentucky. She objected to the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, which announced a right of same-sex couples to marry. Kim Davis said that she simply was not going to issue marriage licenses, define very, very clear precedent from the Supreme Court. There were a number of couples who sued her, And quite appropriately, the district court judge in Kentucky said that Kim Davis had to issue marriage licenses when it became clear that she was going to ignore Obergefell in future cases um, with respect to couples who had not yet brought a lawsuit. Then the judge got involved and he said, essentially, look, we're not going to do this on a case-by-case basis. It's really clear that the Supreme Court has announced this right. It doesn't make any sense to insist that an actual lawsuit be brought by any particular plaintiff. And so the judge said, I am broadly forcing Kim Davis to comply with settled Supreme Court precedent. She has to give everybody a marriage license, even if technically those people have not yet applied and even if technically they are not before me in this court. That is what I think of as a quintessential example of settled law that an official is simply neglecting to apply correctly. So that's one end of the spectrum where I think it's very easy. I actually think that it's pretty easy at the other end of the spectrum if you're the first court to consider, for example, the travel ban. It became fairly clear within days, as a matter of fact, that certain aspects of the first iteration of the travel ban were illegal. Um, And in particular, I'm thinking about how the ban applied to green card holders and um the trump administration even recognized that that aspect of the travel ban simply was not going to survive scrutiny but before the trump administration issued a clarification i think that it was entirely appropriate by the time the third fourth fifth courts had gotten the case for them to say we are issuing a preliminary injunction that says that the Trump administration is not allowed to apply the travel ban against green card holders.
0: You know, in the example that you cite there, that, that last one with the several first courts to hear the matter citing similarly, that would properly give rise to a court finally saying, okay, we're going to you know grant this universal injunction and, and sort of settle the matter for the moment. But in a slightly different situation, if the first few courts differ, do you think that the prudential concerns then weigh against sort of any subsequent court stepping in and saying, okay, we're ruling for you know the whole country, for all the universe of plaintiffs?
2: I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that simply because one court somewhere has issued a contrary ruling that a, a nationwide injunction is never appropriate. But to the extent that a consensus has not emerged. Then I think courts should be very, very skeptical. Um, the last iteration of the travel ban, I actually think, is a really nice example of this phenomenon. Overwhelmingly, courts had said that the travel ban was illegal, and yet the Supreme Court wound up going the other way. There, there had not been that same level of consensus that you saw with respect to at least certain aspects of the first travel ban. So even though I I share a lot of the instincts of the judges who were enjoining the final iteration of the travel ban, I think that that was a scenario where prudence counseled a much more um, hesitant approach.
0: And I suppose this relates to one of the other sort of prudential concerns is that if you know you can get a nationwide injunction from the first court that you get to, then folks sort of race to get to the right forum, you have sort of an extreme forum shopping issue I suppose if you know, the idea is, hey, we're going to let a few courts hear this, and then if there seems to be a consensus, maybe a universal injunction should arise, that would theoretically, you argue, counteract, at least to some extent, the, the race to the right forum, either you know, the Southern District of Texas or the Northern District of California. Is that fair to say?
2: Exactly. So there's actually really good evidence that this kind of extreme forum shopping has been going on precisely because the plaintiffs know how much is at stake and they know that the first final judgment against the government does, as I said before, entrench a particular result throughout the entire country. So you see plaintiffs who are challenging President Obama's policies running to a very conservative district in Texas. A lot of the litigation against President Trump's policies have played out in far more liberal districts, uh, very often in the Ninth Circuit. So if, if you could de-escalate a little bit and essentially say that the first court to reach a final judgment presumptively is not going to issue a nationwide injunction, that is, is at least going to turn down the temperature. It, it's going to suggest that there's an opportunity for bringing cases in different districts, in different circuits Consciously facilitating the percolation of these issues to see if a consensus really is emerging and not simply playing what one might call a game of gotcha, looking for that first final judgment against the government.
0: And that issue of percolation is, of course, related and one worry that folks thinking national injunctions are bad ideas like our previous guest will bring up to say you don't want to freeze the law, we have disparate federal courts for a reason to have them all sort of consider matters and, and see what sort of consensus does develop. Here, earlier in the week, the, the Ninth Circuit order for briefing that we mentioned sort of sets up that problem. The Ninth Circuit is, is asking or suggesting that perhaps it doesn't really have the, the jurisdiction or the ability to hear this contraceptive mandate case before it any longer because a universal injunction has issued from a court in Pennsylvania. So the, the court sort of saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't percolate this idea anymore, or, you know, or should we? It's asking the parties to, to argue either way. You know, what do you think about how this Ninth Circuit order for briefing sort of puts into relief that issue about um, how national injunctions could freeze law development in lower courts?
2: I, I think the the Ninth Circuit is very wise to be attuned to the fact that there could be these inconsistent judgments but i think that the concern about mootness is misplaced let me try to articulate what i believe the view is if a court in the eastern district of pennsylvania issued a nationwide injunction then that settles the matter and that there is nothing that any other court in the ninth circuit or elsewhere could do because At best, it would simply reach the same result and would confirm what the Eastern District of Pennsylvania did, that is to say, finding that the the Trump administration policy was unlawful. Or a worst case scenario is that it would issue a conflicting judgment. And then that's the situation where the government gets put between a rock and a hard place. You potentially could have a court in the Ninth Circuit saying, yes, this policy is absolutely fine, whereas you have a, a court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania saying, no, it's not fine and you are not allowed to enforce this. And if both of those judgments purport to apply nationwide, then you've got the problem that a lot of the opponents of nationwide injunctions have identified. Having said all of that, the case is not moot in the Ninth Circuit. You have plaintiffs who have a live case or controversy. You have courts that have jurisdiction to hear this. What the, the problem is, is about the potential remedy. So, um, is there anything that the plaintiffs could still get out of this? Well, potentially yes. And and the government certainly wants to have the opportunity to litigate this matter. If the government gets a win, that is to say that a court in the Ninth Circuit says this policy that in, that the Eastern District of Pennsylvania has enjoined is in fact lawful, then the government has the opportunity to go back to Pennsylvania and to say. There are conflicting judgments here. Would you consider narrowing the scope of the injunction so that we can continue to enforce our policy in the Ninth Circuit, for example? And that sort of comedy is something that we've always had to live with, and and we trust courts to uh, to respect one another's jurisdiction and to try to avoid conflicts if at all possible. This is inherent in the nature of a system. That, is, that, that divides a lot of authority between federal courts and state courts. They just have to to behave respectfully and, and with comity toward one another. It's not necessarily a matter of a structural imperative that they have to exert power in a particular way or, or to the full extent that their jurisdiction would permit.
0: So you know, just one sort of tangent from there that I, I think our previous guest would have mentioned where he's still on the line is that if you – argue the plaintiffs before the ninth circuit still do have you know live cases and controversies and and potential harm or harm that needs remediation does that to any extent undercut the reality or um, the asserted reach of the eastern district of pennsylvania's injunction as universal as you're saying you know these folks are still have problems here that need to be remedied, doesn't that mean that that universal injunction isn't really universal to them? They're not actually protected by it? And so it's you know the, the, the idea that it's, it truly is a nationwide universal injunction is sort of a, a misnomer? What do you think about that idea?
2: Well, it's, I wouldn't say that it's a misnomer. So the government does have an obligation to respect the judgment of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And right now that means that the government can't enforce a particular policy, In California or anywhere else. The reason that I say that you've still got a live case or controversy is because the plaintiffs in California were not actually parties to the lawsuit in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Why does that matter? Well, if the government winds up somehow being in contempt of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania's injunction, then only the actual parties to that lawsuit can try to bring contempt proceedings against the government to try to force their hand. Somebody who is not a party to that litigation in Pennsylvania is not going to have that same ability. In other words, if you are a, an aggrieved party in California, you can't sue because the government failed to abide by an injunction that issued from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And in that sense, the plaintiffs in California still do have something at stake. There is something that they can get out of
0: this litigation. And the
2: government, of course, des- desperately wants to have the opportunity to defend its policy in court
0: okay maybe just you know one last one here to to wrap up how do you see this area of law developing it seems like there's a you know a, a fairly even split when it comes to the scholarly literature on the idea there has been some references in the supreme court to the use of nationwide injunctions do you think that the the trend will you know sort of continue as it has that it might abate to some extent it seems like it has sort of abated. We've had some big cases that have come through the courts where national injunctions have been a big deal, like travel ban and DACA and DAPA a few years before, but there haven't been quite as many in the last few months, at least. I don't know. What's your thought on how it developed here in the next uh, months or years?
2: I think that the developments of recent months have actually been very, very positive. People like Howard Wasserman, who have argued against nationwide injunctions, I think have had a really salutary effect on courts' decision making. Courts are no longer reflexively issuing nationwide injunctions. They're taking into account the things that I and others believe that they should be taking into account. But the, the potential remedy, that is to say, um, an extreme remedy with a nationwide injunction, is still constitutionally permissible. There are still scenarios where I think that the game really is worth the candle. Tim Davis' example comes to mind, and my hope is that the courts will continue to be sensitive to these policy concerns, these prudential concerns. Again, there's good evidence that they are starting to do that with increasing frequency. This is something that we trust them to do in a host of other contexts. As I say, um, federal and state courts very often have concurrent jurisdiction to adjudicate the same issues and we trust them to to try to avoid unnecessary conflict. We have situations um, where One court issues a judgment and another court has to decide what the appropriate preclusive effect is. Courts are attuned to these problems of of forum shopping, of the wait-and-see gamesmanship, the problem of um, entrenching a particular result too early. All of these policy and prudential concerns are ones that they take account of in myriad contexts. This is yet one more. There's really nothing special about nationwide injunctions from that perspective. It simply requires courts to show good judgment, not to resort to a nationwide injunction reflexively. And I think that we see that uh, the, the courts are, are doing a better job of drilling down on whether they are appropriate in this particular situation. So my hope is that the support won't shut down nationwide injunctions altogether and say, as Justice Thomas intimated in his concurrence in the Hawaii case that they should never be allowed. I think he's wrong that they run afoul of traditional equity jurisprudence and that they're unconstitutional. I, I, again, I hope that the Supreme Court and other courts will recognize that there at least can be a place for these nationwide injunctions and that when they're talking about them, they're talking about them in the right context. That is to say, asking the policy and the prudential questions rather than, I, I think, falsely framing it as a constitutional problem.
0: And Professor Alan Trammell from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That's our podcast for May 3rd, 2019. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Professors Howard Wosterman from Florida International University and Alan Trammell from the University of Arkansas. Thanks also to my production staff here, Principal Nick Perez, and thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. First, that CLE credit is easily claimable for your having listened to this episode. Just go to dailyjournal.com, find this podcast, and then a short true-false test that once you've taken, you can submit in order to claim that hour of credit. Also, don't forget to look for us on the various podcast streaming avenues through which you listen to this sort of media. You can search for Weekly Appellate Report and find us there. Also, Daily Journal should find us as well. Your subscriptions, clicks, rates, and reviews are all very much appreciated. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.